usually when I preach, I have lots of ideas about what I want to preach on, and usually I've written the sermon weeks and weeks in advance. Nothing was working for me um, as I was trying to prep for this sermon. I keep hitting brick walls. I keep, you know, I'm like, oh, man, can I preach on anything? Is, there, is this just a playground where God doesn't care what we play on, whether it's the slide or the swings, but it all points back to him? Um, but anyway, I kept getting, you know, I was like, man, do I just need to pray more? Do I just need to read my Bible more? Like, I was kind of getting in this stuck in this whole, like, what more do I need to do to, like, unlock or break through? Because I've got nothing, nothing. Um, but on my last day of block course, and I think this was putting in some of the, into practice some of the tools I'd learned from Richard Black, but um, on the way home I went and sat at the beach for an hour just to kind of defrag, to, to separate a little bit between block courses, which was quite heavy this week we covered, or that week we covered grief and we covered um, suicidality and, you know, like it was some pretty big topics. Anyway, I was sitting at the beach I was like, God, come on, I've got nothing, I'm going away. And, you know, at that point, I'm like, you know, it was two days from flying to Invercargill, I didn't want to have to take writing a sermon with me. I'm like, what are you doing? Um, <laughs> and I felt like God dropped this question, Holy Spirit dropped this question into my head. Um, if I could take away your insecurity, what would you preach on? And I was like, what the flip? Like, the words just flowed from that. And I was like, I didn't know that insecurity was my thing that was holding me back from writing a message. Um, so... Yeah, it wasn't actually that I needed to add more scripture into my life. It wasn't that I needed to add more prayer, but actually there was a subtraction that had to happen. Um, and I think that's actually quite true for us often. What, what do we need to take out rather than um, leave in? Um, so this morning we read that, um, Karen read that passage for us from First Peter. Um, but the verse I want us to focus on this morning is First Peter 2.9. But you are not like that, for you are a chosen people. You are royal priests, a holy nation, God's very own possession. As a result, you can show others the goodness of God, for he called you out of the darkness into his wonderful light. Uh, so this morning, I guess the title of this message is just that, um, the priesthood of all believers. Um, I've been hearing the word remnant a lot lately. Uh, I think this comes in response to the crisis Numbers in the body have fallen across all churches. It's not just here at Awaken, it's everywhere. Every other pastor I talk to says, and that's us too. Um, and what's their response to that? Mark Sayers, he's a pastor and a cultural commentator in Melbourne. He's spoken and written a lot on this lately. And he's been talking a lot about the grey zone. And the grey zone is a transitional space with rapid change. We've had in the past clear procedures and boundaries and definitions. So the pandemic has drawn to the surface a lot of what's been simmering away underneath. Um, I heard a statement that history has been accelerated in the pandemic. So it's not necessarily that a lot, is, a lot has changed, but it's happened a lot faster because of the last three years. In this grey zone, as people are anxiously trying to find their way when status quo is no longer possible, where anxiety is running high, the world needs a body of royal priests who represents a God who does not change. Um, in an article this week uh, in Metanoia, uh, Caleb Tangaroa Haurua wrote an opinion piece pondering if we missed something with the pandemic. And he said, as we returned to meeting in person, we noticed no real marked change amongst our congregation and spiritual growth. If anything, people were just happy to see each other again and get back to normal. For others, we noticed that the structures we had abided by for years were contributing to the situation. 
we saw more clearly that our Sunday-centric model of being the church together, peppered, of course, with a small number of home groups, age-specific ministries, i.e. youth group, if we were lucky, a church camp, was designed in a way that disempowered people from owning their faith and community. For too long, people have relied on a spiritual top-up on faith, feeding on an unhealthy diet of a three-point sermon, sung worship, and a cup of tea after the service. Most churches have gone back to business as usual, which is a real shame considering that the product we are selling or having sold to us is in many respects contributing to the decreasing sense of discipleship among our churches. I think we've missed opportunities to ask deeper questions. What would our gathering look like if we decentered Sunday our Sundays? If we recentered Monday to Saturday? What could the impact be on our wider communities, our cities, our society? Such penetrating questions are needed still. And Mark says, he said, also said a lot as well as talking about the grey zone, he's talked, said a lot, this, this one phrase, he says, crisis precedes renewal. I think we've had that, we've had the crisis, um, and so I've got a lot of hope for renewal for the, for the wider capital C church, but we all have a part to play in that, and I don't think church is going to look like what it did pre-2020. So what is the priesthood of all believers? Um, J.V. Fesco, now I, I admit, if I've, there's some of the quotes in here this morning, I'm quoting them because they sound way better than I was able to pull off at four o'clock this morning. Uh, yeah, I wasn't paraphrasing, so, but I will make sure I uh, give credit where credit is due. So J.V. Fesco, he defines the priesthood of all believers as the doctrine of the priesthood of all believers states uh, that all believers in Christ share his priestly status. Therefore, there is no special class of people who mediate the knowledge, presence, and forgiveness of Christ to the rest of believers and all believers have the right and authority to read, interpret, and apply the teachings of Scripture. Um, so a bit of history. Uh, so within a hundred years of Jesus, um, there was attempts to create structure through bishops, deacons, and lay people. Um, so you remember from the reunion series we had, I think it was last year, that um, Jesus came to shut down religion. Like, it wasn't very long after Jesus that we were already trying to put in some, some big structures and, you know, bring him back religion. So within just a few hundred years, um, especially once sort of Constantine came in place, but uh, Christians were stripped of being priests responsible for ministry, and they were again dependent on ordained clergy for their spiritual well-being. Um, and the medieval understanding was that God worked through priests. When I use priests in that sense, I guess, you know, uh, priests that were standing between uh, God and the rest of the congregation. Um, yeah, so God was worked through priests to deliver the seven sacraments of the church. So then the Catholic Church, the baptism, the Eucharist, which is our communion, confirmation, penance, anointing the sick, marriage, and the laying hands and ordination. So it was this, there was this um, chain of commands. It was God... It was these priests, and then it was the congregation. But Martin Luther, uh, in the 16th century, he was a great proponent of universal priesthood, um, and he was against the corruption of a merit-based hierarchical clergy system, among other things. He had a lot of uh, grievances against the church at that stage. So the priesthood of all believers was a foundational principle of the Reformation, it means that believers had direct access to God through the word and through prayer 
no longer needed to be mediated by clergy. Paul Althus, in his book, The Theology of Martin Luther, he said, the universal priesthood expresses not religious individualism, but its exact opposite, the reality of the congregation as a community. He goes on to say, we stand before God, pray for others, intercede with and sacrifice ourselves to God and proclaim the word to one another. Martin Luther, he said, all Christians are truly of the spiritual estate. There is no difference among them except that of office. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12 that we are one body, yet every member has its own work by which it serves the others. This is because we all have one baptism, one gospel, one faith, and are all Christians alike. We are all consecrated priests through baptism. It follows from this argument that there is no true basic difference between laymen and priests, princes and bishops, between religious and secular, except for the sake of office and work, but not for the sake of status. The priesthood of all believers means that we stand before God, pray for others, intercede with and sacrifice ourselves to God, and proclaim the word to one another. So by spiritual estate, we are the same. We might not have the same work to do, and for that I'm grateful. Um, that's the beauty of the body. We've all got different ways of expressing that calling. Timothy Georgie said, but for Luther, the priesthood of all believers did not mean I am my own priest. It meant rather, in the community of saints, God has so tempered the body that we are all priests to one another. Uh, we stand before God and intercede for one another. We proclaim God's word to one another and we celebrate his presence among us in worship, praise and fellowship. Moreover, our priestly ministry does not terminate upon ourselves. It propels us into the world in service and witness. So we're not an authority unto ourselves. It's not that I'm a, you know, I'm a royal priest, therefore I uh, don't need community. I definitely need community because I need you guys to minister to me and I get to minister to you. Um, whilst we might forget it, Eden was a tabernacle. The garden was a picture, well, it was the Holy of Holies, and when they built, you know, the real tabernacle, it had all of this Eden and garden imagery within it. You know, Adam and Eve were commissioned, they were given um, a mandate, and the same language was later used when priests were commissioned in the wilderness after the Exodus. Adam and Eve were royal, they were a royal priesthood before the fall. And Israel was a kingdom of priests. In Exodus 19, God says, you will be my kingdom of priests, my holy nation. In Isaiah 61, you'll be called priests of the Lord, ministers of our God. Priesthood in the Old Testament was a relatively complicated affair. I don't know if you've ever, usually when people start their, you know, their annual Bible reading, by the time they kind of get into Leviticus, the wheels are kind of fallen off a little bit. Um, I started a couple of years ago trying to read uh, Leviticus and Hebrews side by side, like there's a way to do that. Um, but whilst I really enjoy Hebrews, I really <laughs> struggle with the Leviticus part of it. Um, so priests, you know, they had to um, offer a bull to cleanse themselves. So when it came to the atonement sacrifice, um, there were so many rules. They had to um, offer a bull to cleanse themselves. They'd take some of the blood and sprinkle it on the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies. Then two goats were taken. Two goats were taken. The blood of one was sprinkled on the altar and the other, the priests, would lay hands on it, confess the sins of Israel over it, and then send it out into the wilderness. 
that goat would bear all their sins and carry them away. Um, you can read about that in Leviticus 16. Um, and they'll be hoping that the goat doesn't come back. <laughs> uh, then came the time of exile. So Israel, they failed at their vocation, their vocation of being a royal priesthood. Israel failed and was sent into exile. Um, and of course, in exile, there was no way for them to do the sacrifices. All of that fell apart as they were living as basically slaves in foreign lands. Um, but the prophets at this time started to point to a Messiah that would bear all of Israel's sins. So in Isaiah 53, and you'll be f- familiar with this passage, yet, as at, yet it was our weakness he carried, it was our sorrows that weighed him down, and we thought his troubles were a punishment for God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our own sins. He was beaten so we could be whole, He was whipped so that we could be healed. All of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We have left God's path to follow our own. Yet our Lord laid on him the sins of all. In Hebrews 9, 11 to 12, it says, So Christ has now become the high priest over all good things that have come. He has entered that greater, more perfect tabernacle in heaven, which was not made by human hands and is not part of this created world. With his own blood, not the blood of goats and calves, he entered the most holy place once and for all time and secured our redemption forever. So Jesus was both the scapegoat and the priest. I really struggled to get my head around that most of the time. He fulfilled the office of an Old Testament priest and it's through our union with him that we get to join with him in his work. Um, In Hebrews, I know it's a bit of scripture, um, but we're in church, right? So it's all good. <laughs> um, in Hebrews 4, 14 to 16, it says, So then, since we have a great high priest who has entered heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses, for he faced all of the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy and we'll find grace to help us when we need it most. At Priestly, Jesus is set apart, holy and blameless. Jesus has already provided the final sacrifice. He had ended the needed need for sacrifices within a temple. The sacrifices that could never bring full atonement, but Jesus had done it once and for all. And we don't need to appeal any longer to a priest to intercede for us. We don't, we don't need to appeal to even a pastor Um, we can enter boldly, we can come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. And we're invited to draw near. Um, And I probably need to address that, obviously, in church, some of us are in paid ministry. Um, But we're not dependent, you're not dependent on your pastor's faith to carry you. Um, And you would have caught that, especially in how Paul's preaching. I think in his message last week, he said it again, that um, he'd, no filters between you and Jesus. You know, Paul doesn't want to stand in the way of you and Jesus with his teaching. He wants to walk alongside. Um, and Martin Luther, he said, a priest is not identical with a presbyter or a minister, for one is born to be a priest, one becomes a minister. Um, so it's about function, but not status. So in other words, we're all priests, but we won't all be pastors, we won't all be elders, and we won't all carry specific giftings, like maybe shepherding or teaching. We've each got different roles to play in the body, and some of those roles might just be for a season or two, 
but first, we are all priests. There is no difference in our status. We each have access to God, and like we sung this morning, we are all sons and daughters. We are all children of God. In 1 Corinthians 4, it says there are different kinds, uh, sorry, not 1 Corinthians 12, I've written it down wrong. Uh, there are different kinds of spiritual gifts, but the same spirit is the source of them all. There are different kinds of service, but we serve the same Lord. God works in different ways, but is the same God who does the work in all of us. A spiritual gift is given to each of us so that we can help each other. So we are to help one another. We are to minister to one another. We're invited to co-labor with Jesus. We are agents of reconciliation, reconciling a broken world back to God. Um, in 1 Corinthians 3, Paul, you said, at oh, the start of Corinthians, you know, uh, Paul really doesn't give a rip whether it's him or whether it's Apollos who is, you know, sharing his word. He says, you know, we're both God's workers and you are God's field. Um, the message version of the passage we read earlier from First Peter, it says, but you are ones chosen by God, chosen for the high calling of priestly work, chosen to be a holy people, God's instruments to do his work and speak for him, to tell others of the night and day difference he made for you, from nothing to something, from rejected to accepted. Um, a few weeks ago, my favorite uncle, uh, my dad's closest brother passed away very suddenly. Um, in the days that followed um, him passing away, I really felt there was a there was a job for me to do at home. Um, so there was some a, f- a little bit of a feeling of urgency to get home. Um, my uncle not a Christian. His wife is a Christian. The rest of my family also not Christians. And it felt like there was a gap in there that I had to um, I, I don't know breach. That's not the right word, but. Um, And on that Sunday, so my uncle died on the Friday night. On Sunday morning after church, Paul came and found me uh, in the foyer, and he goes, I think you're taking a funeral this week. And I was like, whatever, like, whatever. Um, And that was before I had spoken to my auntie or anything. And uh, on Wednesday, I got to see my auntie, um, and she asked me to take the funeral, um, which was a massive um, privilege and an honor to be able to do that for my family. And um, a friend said to me, he said, um, your family need a priest at this time, and you are it for them. Um, which was really interesting, because I had never considered that my family would, uh, that I would get to be that for my family. I think I had always assumed that my family hearing the gospel or my family having Jesus really shared with them would come from outside of the family. Because after all, they have known me the longest. They know all my faults. Uh, and sometimes I wonder how good of a witness I am for my family. Um, but it was such a joy to be able to minister to them. Um, and there was a lot of work that had to go into the funeral because there's a lot of, um, they were raised Catholic uh, and there was a lot of sort of church hurt and that religious harm that was done um, when they were growing up. So it was really, you know, there was, there was a lot of um, care that was needed in that. But uh, that night after we'd had the funeral and we had a celebration, which was just my family doing a lot of drinking, <laughs> um, there were some real interesting conversations that I got to have with some of the family, and it was like something had shifted. Um, and when I met with my aunt yesterday, we caught up. She said, yeah, there was something that had shifted, like the spirit had changed um, in regards to her family. And, um, yeah, I, I got to be a priest to my family, and I think that going forward I will get to continue being that because there's been some, 
you know, I got to provide some pastoral care and, and listen to some stories of, you know, cousins and stuff who had some pretty big, you know, grief in their lives. Yeah, so sometimes we think that, you know, maybe a priest for our family is going to come from outside of, outside of the family, but actually sometimes it's going to come from within. And God uses imperfect humans. If he can use me, he can use anybody. Um, and, you know, when we look at Scripture, God used a lot of imperfect humans. Often we hold up some of the, the, the heroes of the Bible. We talk about these men and women as being heroes, and actually they were really broken as well. So God chooses to use those in the Bible that were imperfect, you know, Moses, he had a bit of a confused identity. He was a murderer. Gideon, um, I love how there's that line, was it a sword for the Lord and Gideon? And yet, you know, God worked with his doubts. You know, God didn't um, punish Gideon or, you know, anything because he doubted. He worked so that he knew that Gideon was on board. Um, and Peter, you know, this passage is from, we're reading from Peter this morning. Peter, he was impulsive and he was a deserter and yet, you know, the church started with him. Um... Just a couple of points, just what it is for us as priests. We're invited into prayer. Luther said, for as priests, we are worthy to appear before God and to pray for others and teach one another divine things. We get to come before God boldly, boldly and we get to share with others what it is that we're hearing from God. And prayer is for all of us. It's not just for those that appear to be good at prayer. Sometimes I stand next to people who just pray so elegantly and beautifully and articulately, and I'm, there's not even a word probably, but I'm just like, man, how can I even, but actually we all can pray. It doesn't have to sound beautiful because God hears our hearts. Um, and as for all of us, in First Timothy 2, it says, I urge you, first of all, to pray for all people. Ask God to help them, intercede on their behalf, and give thanks for them. As priests, we get to make sacrifices, but it looks a little bit different to it as it did in the, uh, the Old Testament. We're not called, thankfully, to sacrifice goats and uh, sheep. I might have chosen a different, uh, different calling, different vocation. Um, <laughs> but it says in 1 Peter 2.5, You are living stones that God is building into his spiritual temple. What's more, you are his holy priests. Through the mediation of Christ Jesus, you offer spiritual sacrifices that please God. We are living sacrifices. And I'm sure most of you all know Romans 12, 1 to 2. And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. In Hebrews 13, 15 and 16, it says, Therefore, let us offer through Jesus a continual sacrifice of praise to God, proclaiming our allegiance to his name, and don't forget to do good and share with those in need. These are the sacrifices that, bless, uh, that please God. Um, and in Philippians, when um, the Philippian church had looked after Paul, they'd supplied some of his needs. He said uh, of the resources and gifts that they'd given him, he said they are a sweet-smelling sacrifice that is acceptable and pleasing to God. So just in meeting the needs of others, sometimes that in itself is a sweet-smelling sacrifice.
and you were called out of darkness into his marvellous light. The Levitical priests in the Old Testament, they lived among the people, but they were also set apart to do the work of God. The priesthood of all believers doesn't just impact how we relate to God, but how we relate to one another. In Galatians 6, of course, it says, bear one another's burdens. So we get to be priests to one another. There's a mutuality in that. And we can build one another up by speaking God's word to one another. In Colossians 3, 16 to 17, it says, Let the message about Christ and all its richness fill your lives. Teach and counsel each other with the wisdom he gives. Sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to God with thankful hearts. And whatever you do or say, do it as a representative of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God our Father. And it says in Hebrews 10, 23 to 25, one of my favorite passages in Scripture. Let us hold tightly without wavering to the hope we affirm, for God can be trusted to keep his promise. Let us think of ways to motivate one another to do acts of love and good works, and let us not neglect our meeting together, as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. You know, so tabernacles are those places where heaven meets earth. And at the start of scripture, we have Eden as a tabernacle. And then the Israelites have it in the wilderness, and then they build um, you know, temples for God. There's spaces where heaven meets earth. We get to be those spaces where heaven meets earth for other people, for one another. Um, and so the Bible not only started with the Holy of Holies in Eden, but it ends with the Holy of Holies in Jerusalem. And we read about that in Revelation. And this is our vocation as priests. We get to be places where heaven meets earth for one another. Um, in his recent theological and cultural reflection, um, which some of you might have read, Francis Ritchie, um, and he was you know, addressing some of the stuff we have with uh, the, the church culture in New Zealand. He said, serving the church is mutually serving those in the faith community with us. Giving to the church means giving to meet the needs of others when they are struggling. Growing the church means connecting with others and deepening our bonds with each other as we walk in the way of Jesus. In this framework, everything becomes about the life of people, a community that exists to serve and uplift one another in our shared commitment to Christ. Christ is present among us. So if God's word is true, that's one of the questions that we ask with our Discovery Bible study. If God's word is true, what does this mean for me? If we're each responsible for our place in this body of priests, what is required for us? Because our salvation is not just fire insurance. We're called to serve and to lay our lives down. We have a corporate responsibility to one another, to minister to one another. Timothy George, um, who I quoted earlier, he captures Luther's viewpoint in one sentence. He said, Every Christian is someone else's priest, and we are all priests to one another. There's nothing individualistic about how we're supposed to do our faith. Um, so I'm just about to pray, but then um, we're going to break into discussion groups, um, and I'd just like you to have, just discuss with a couple of people, two, three f- people around you, um, what does it look like if I'm to take the scriptures seriously about being a priest to others? What does that look like? Um, but Father, I just want to thank you for this morning, the opportunity when we can come together as community and uh, I guess to have our three-point sermon, a few worship songs and a cuppa, but 
Father, I pray that as we gather and as we chat, what does this look like in our lives? Um, that there would be something tangible um, that we can take away as we embody you, as we are agents of reconciliation in our world. Um, thank you, Jesus, that you're willing to be united with us, that you didn't just save us to be, um, yeah, for, for that fire insurance, that ticket to heaven, that actually you invite us to co-labor with you in your um, mission of redemption and reconciliation. Thank you, Lord. Amen.